talked about in Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6, if you haven't been with us, we were doing a series on Believer's Armor from Ephesians chapter 6. And as I was thinking about it to this week's preparation for this particular one, I was thinking about some things that have happened in years gone by. 1725, Beringer was a university scholar known around Europe at that time for being such a scholar. And all of a sudden, he discovered these tablets, clay tablets, that had fossils embedded with them, in them, but also writing on the clay tablets. And even on some of the writing, he found the name Jehovah. Well, he postulated and put out saying that this proves that evolution, that idea of, of fossils coming years and years before mankind couldn't be true because there's handwriting at the same time as there was the fossils. And they even talked about Jehovah. Only after he published his documentation and made this claim <clears throat> was it found out that two of his enemies in that university, they had staged the entire thing. They had embedded the fossils. They had written Jehovah on there. And they had even put Beringer's name in small print on one of the tablets. It's called one of the greatest hoax that, were pro that was put on a person. And it discredited him. It was a fraud. It was something that was all make-believe to ruin this man. Then I was reading about what happened at World War I, that in November, all of a sudden, somebody reported that the Germans were ready to sign an armistice. So it was reported by the press there in Europe and cabled to America. Within a couple hours after the report had been cabled, and now all the cable lines were, were filled up, did the man who supposedly got the report and started giving out the information, he was told it was a hoax. A German spy had given him the information with the idea that maybe then the Allies would stop supplying the front lines and give the Germans an advantage. And it was a hoax. Only did it, it took 24 hours before they were able to get the news to America that it wasn't true, and the war went on another six months. Somebody had harm in mind, and they created a hoax. Oh, one of the big hoax that created real problems was in 1899, four newspaper reporters. They didn't have any stories for their newspapers, and they thought together as they were sitting at a bar drinking this kind of figures, they were half drunk, and they decided we could just make up some fake news. Can you imagine that happening? Fake news. So they said, we're going to make some fake news. Let's just report to our papers that here in Denver, we met a man from Chicago who was traveling and stopped at Denver, and he was headed for China. And they created this whole story that this engineer from Chicago was going to China and organizing groups of workers and getting it all put in place to tear down the Great Wall of China so that they could build a road from China to Europe to open up more trade throughout all of that region. Well, when the Chinese heard about it, there was an element of traditionalists who were getting tired of colonial influences in China and wanted to revert back to the idea that, that they wanted to be isolated from the world. And they were so enraged by this newspaper report that they started what's called the Boxer Rebellion, which started with killing off many missionaries that were spread throughout China. But it was a hoax. It was a hoax, all done and ending up in harming people. My friend, there's lots of fake news out there. There's lots of hoaxes that are, that are you know, done to different people. I want to just reassure you of something. 
that when we are, this study that we are doing, when we're talking about Ephesians 6, this is no hoax. This is no make-believe. It is real. Don't minimize what Paul wrote under the inspiration of scriptures to relay to us generations later about something that we need to be careful about. You follow along as I read just a few verses here, and then let's bring it together. In Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the, or the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, while praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. There are two profound truths that are not make-believe, but they are very important from this text. One is there is a spirit world around us as real as the pew you're sitting upon. You can't see it right now. We don't get glimpses unless God were to all of a sudden give us that eyesight to see. But there is angelic beings. There are demonic beings all around us. The second truth is that some of them are doing us harm wanting to do us harm. They are battling against us. There's a spiritual warfare that is going on. And so far in this study, we've been talking about that warfare, who the enemy is. This text made it very clear. It's the devil. It is the principalities, the rulers of darkness. It is those spiritual wicked beings that are opposed to us. We've talked about how the devil and his minions, their hordes, how they are opposed to us and what they are like and that they're real, they're wicked, they're, they're vicious, they are organized, they're aggressive, and they attack. I was thinking about this, and maybe my foolish mind was thinking about Job's situation, how Job was attacked, this godly man, this righteous man. He was attacked. And so often when we think about Job and what happened to him, we question, why would God allow Satan to harm Job and his family? And I was thinking about that and saying, I think we, we pose the wrong question. I think we look at it totally backwards at times. Just think if God would all of a sudden take off of, his, take off of Satan and his hordes the restraints that he normally has. You see, the reason that Job's kids were killed, that Job's, all of a sudden his businesses were wiped out, all of a sudden he was physically attacked, is God allowed Satan to do the attack by saying, I'm not going to restrain you. You know what that tells me? Satan is restrained already. Instead of questioning God, we ought to say, thank you God for restraining him, lest our kids, our businesses, our bodies come under severe attack. Because when Satan was allowed just a moment to attack Job, he didn't hesitate a bit to take life. That's how wicked this is. That's how dangerous this is. 
that Satan and his minions with just a little bit of rope, they assaulted that man in every which way. Thank God that God has a rope on Satan, that we don't suffer that same way, but he intends to hurt as much as he can. So we talked about the enemy. We talked about some of the fiery darts that he uses and how he attacks in modern day. And we've spent time talking about this the last couple of weeks of how he attacks. And then we have in this text not only the enemy but the engagement. Who's involved in it? And according to this text, he repeats it several times that this engagement is serious, it's deadly, it's unavoidable. You sitting here saying, well, I'm, I'm in a safe spot. No, we're not. There is no safe spot. There, Satan is going to come and attack us who are believers. We don't have to go out and pick a fight. He is against us. We're told to stand, to hold the ground because he's going to come. It's unavoidable. There are no neutral zones. There are no safe zones. There are no sanctuaries in this battle. That is what happened in World War I and then World War II. It was a whole new thing that happened in those eras. Before that, typically populations were spared from the actual battles. But all of a sudden, World War I, World War II in particular, civilians came under attack. They were no longer you know, safe because they weren't in the front zone. We've been seeing it here in the Ukraine lately. Pictures of how civilians are suffering from the actual battles and the attacks. That's the way it is spiritually. There isn't anybody that's in this safe spot. It's going to be an attack, a temptation that's going to come to married people. We talked about how that happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It happens to single people. We talked about in the passages where it talks about the widows, how they are under attack. We talked about the young people. Young people, Adam and Eve, were just days old before they were attacked, or weeks old at the most. We talk about the idea of immature believers. The believers in Corinth, who he talks about as being carnal, they were under attack. But then there was the mature believers, like the Apostle Paul. When we look at the book of Ephesians, I want you to catch something that's very interesting. He starts off with verse 10. Finally, who's he talking to? Verse 10. Finally, who? My brethren. Who has he talked to in the previous paragraphs? Well, you go back and we read in verse 22, 23, 24, husbands, wives. We read in chapter 6, verse 1, children. We read as, as people that he's talked to, the parents in verse 4. We read a little bit further about the servants, the employees, and then the employers. So basically what he's saying is every one of you, at every level, you are going to be prey of Satan who goes about roaring as a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And if he was bold enough to attack Jesus Christ, surely you don't scare him. You, don't, you and I don't intimidate him. So he, the engagement is one that he is trying to turn us from God and turn God from us. But then, what I want you to see with me this morning is not only the enemy that we've talked about, the exhortations, but I want you to see the exhortations. What I mean by that is this. And I'm not trying to get overcomplicated, but just to help you to understand the text, there are six commands in the verses that we just read. They are listed here in each one of the different sections. They are imperatives. They are all given in a plural, which means that they are speaking to you all, or a southern way, y'all. 
You're all involved in this. You all have to be strong, put on, take up, stand. You all. And if we were going to go a little bit deeper and understand the grammar, it is very interesting how he phrases things. Very clearly, keep on being strong. Begin to put on, begin to take, begin to stand, begin to take. Keep on praying. So he starts and ends with an idea of keep on doing something, but in between, you got to begin something else. So all of this comes together and it says, okay, what do we teach? Oh, maybe we should go through phrase by phrase, or maybe we could do this. Maybe this morning what we can do is say all six of those commands, what are they stressing? What, are, what do they all have in common? They seem to emphasize three thoughts. Number one thought is they emphasize the promised results. The promised results. There are, there are in this text, in his commands, there are phrases that are given after several commands that tell you why you need to be strong, why you need to take up, why you need to be praying. And it comes up in verse 11, verse 13, twice in verse 13, that you may be able to, that you may be able to stand to withstand, to stand. It's a military term. It has the idea of to hold your ground, to take the defensive and not retreat, not give up, not have to back down. And so what do we find out is this, is the idea is that we don't go out and pick fights, they're going to come to us. It's going to happen. That Satan's going to attack. And the idea here is that what we need to do is we need not to retreat we can hold our ground. We are promised the victory. You know how it's happened for some of you, for some of us? When we first got saved, our language was bad. Our habits were bad. Some of the things we did were pretty awful. And even though we are growing in the Lord, there are times when we are attacked and we think, oh, I might as well give it up. I, I won't have the victory. But God is saying, you can have victory. You don't have to retreat. You don't have to go back to the old things. In fact, that was his theme just two chapters before. Go back to chapter 4, verse 17, where he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth don't walk anymore as the other unsaved or Gentiles walked in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from life in God, Verse 19, who being past feeling gave themselves unto lasciviousness to work on cleanness, but you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him, that you put off concerning the former conversation that old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which after God is created. He's saying to us who are believers, we don't have to go back into the old lifestyle. We don't have to return to those things. We can keep on moving forward. In other words, we can be victorious over demonic attacks and temptations. That's the promise. You can have victory. You can overcome that besetting sin. That, that's what Scripture points out. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Where he talks about don't give place to the devil. There is no reason why you can't have victory over temptations according to the promised results in this text. And so when we look at it, we find out that these, for all these commands, they emphasize a promised result. They also emphasize personal responsibilities. 
God promises you a result, but you've got to do something. He's given you commands. You need to put on, he says, the whole armor of God. We're very clearly begin to do this. In other words, dress yourself that you put it on. In other words, God's not going to force you to all of a sudden put on this armor, which we'll explain more in depth next week starting. God's not going to force you to battle, to, to defend. God's not going to force you to do anything. If you want, fine, you can just give in. Give in and continue to sinning against God. God doesn't want it. God forbid that we would do it, but he's not forcing you. He is saying you have a responsibility in this battle to do this one thing, to put on the armor, to take it, to dress, so that you can experience. And he says it another way, but very similar. Take up. Take up the second command here. Begin to take up. Begin to take to yourself, as he talks about the whole armor of God. And the word here, the way it's phrased, is you got to do it now. Begin to do it now. Don't wait. Don't think you're immune. Don't think this that you only have to battle when you reach whatever age. You got to do it now. You got to. You, you can't wait until you graduate. You can't wait until you say, "Well, when I get married, then I'll be concerned." Be concerned now is the point. And he tells us why the evil day is upon us. Would you debate that with the scriptures? Do you think we live in an evil day? where there is a lot of corruption and temptation? Does it strike you that it seems like every day it's getting more evil? And he's saying, you got you to take up. Begin now. If you want the victories, which I have promised, you have a responsibility. You need to take the armor. You need, and he says it twice. He says that you need to put on, you need to take up. What does that tell you? If twice in this text he is emphasizing the idea of putting on the armor or taking it, what does that tell you about the armor? Hello? It's important. It is critical. It is the idea that if we want to win, we must have this. God says it twice. We can't win without it, and we need it now. Not next week. It's important that we take it. We put it on as he says. And it tells me that we're not automatically clothed with it. For some reason, as I was young in the Lord, I used to think, well, just because I go to church, now I have this protection about me because I went and listened to the preacher preach. And so now I'm girded about and it's already there and I can just go and don't have to worry about reading scripture, don't have to worry about praying like I ought to pray because I heard the Bible, boom. I'm all of a sudden in this safety zone. But that's not what it says. It says you've got to do something. Not just me do something here with the Word of God, but you've got to do something with it. That you've got to apply it. And if he's telling this to all of us in this room, it means God's got plenty of armor to go around. God is not like some manufacturing company that's going to run out because there's a supply shortage. God has no issues with that. God has armor for every single one of us. But there's a third command where you have responsibility. You need to be praying. You need to be praying. This is where he ends up in verse 18. In verse 18 where he says, keep on, this is one of the two keep on. Keep on praying. Keep on praying over and over and over again. Keep on getting alone with the Lord. The writer assumes that you're doing it. He's assuming that every one of you in this room and me, that we are on a regular daily basis praying. 
How do I know he assumes that? Keep on doing it. My question to you is, are you? Did he assume wrong about you? He's not, I'm not talking about us. Are you praying? Keep on praying every day. He says it is to be a regular habit. Keep on praying always. Always, every day, every week, that this is your lifestyle. Not just when you're in TNT. Not just when you're in Calvary Clubs and during the school year, but even during the summer. Not just when you come to camp. Not just when all of a sudden we're getting ready for Saturday, you're getting ready for church, so I'm going to pray on Saturday. This is to be a part of your life regularly, is it? That's what the author is asking. I see in the text that it is to be done by everyone here. Not just the dads, not just the moms, not just the older folk. It's to be done by everyone. Everyone here, everyone listening. This is to be a regular part of your daily week, your daily life. Do you? Do you personally take time to have that prayer moment? That's personal responsibility that God gives in this text. That he says, hey, you, you've got this promised result, but you've got a personal responsibility. Many of you, you watch this program from time to time. America's Got Talents. And you've probably seen, like the few times that we've watched it or seasons that we watched it, some people come out and they claim to have tremendous talent. They get out there and they're telling about how they can do something wonderful and they stink so bad <laughs> that they get buzzed and they're, they're ushered off the stage when all of them buzz them and say, eh. I mean, there used to be a program years ago called the uh, Gong Show and what would they do? gong in the middle. I wonder right now for our worship time when we are here and God is our audience or judge that as I stand you sit and we come before God and we say yes God I'm one who's really faithful in praying. Gong. It's all pretend. The responsibilities of this text are real. The results are promised. They are real. There is a third emphasis in this text that is important for us. We've already mentioned two. Let me give you the third. The provided resources. The commands, in, they, they make it very clear. God has promised results. He has given us personal responsibilities. But with those responsibilities, he's given us provided resources heavenly resources. There are two of them in the text. One is the panoplis. That's the original word. Panoply, panoplis. It is the armor of God. It is the word for the suit. It's very clear that what he's saying in this text is that this is a heavenly armor, a spiritual armor for a spiritual warfare. Does it look like a coat and tie? Does it look like the outfits we wear? Not necessarily. Not at all in what we're used to. But it's a spiritual armor that is a complete outfit. It's not just a hat. It's not just the shoes. It's the whole wardrobe. It's the complete thing. And God in his grace has provided one for you. A heavenly outfit. One that will work against Satan. It will do the job. It will assist you to have these victories. And in fact, it's tailored for you. 
It will fit you. God has this provided. It, and it's amazing armor. Now, what we know about this is there are several items which over the next few weeks now we're going to talk about each one of them. But leaving that until we get to it, let's look at the second resource that God has given us, okay? And that is the ability, not only the panoply or the armor, the power or the ability to be able to have victory. The reason we say that is in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Wow, what a statement. The, the phrase that he does, how he does it, is, is this idea is you, when he says be strong, literally he says you be strengthened. You keep on being strengthened. In other words, what he's telling us is we don't have the strength within ourselves. We just don't. What did he say to, to Peter? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's you, that's me. And so he says, I'm not going to put you in a battle you know, where, you're, where you're just out there and going to be beaten up. I'm going to give you the weaponry, the armor, but I'm also going to give you the, the strength. I'm going to give you the ability. I'm going to strengthen you day in, day out, hour by hour, week by week. You struggle with something, I'm going to help you. I'm not going to leave you alone. I will be your source of strength. You don't have it on your own. That's why he uses the word become strengthened. You aren't strong in and of yourself. And what does he warn us? How does he say that? Take heed lest any man thinks he stands. Take heed lest he... Yeah, pride goes before the fall, the destruction. The point is, you and I don't have this spiritual strength to win it. We must be going to the Lord and letting Him strengthen us. He must be doing that work, and we know He's strong enough. He can defeat Satan, God, Christ. We know in the power of His might, it's His power, it's His strength that He shares with us we know that Jesus was more powerful than Satan. He alone overcame him. Upon this rock, he said, I will build my, and he's the rock. Upon the rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell. They don't stand a chance. What did he say? He himself also likewise took part of a human body that through death he might destroy, render powerless him that wants to kill us, the devil. What did we read in Colossians? He spoiled or disarmed the principality's powers and put them to shame, triumphing over them. What do we read? For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. What do we read further? He said, all power is given unto me. God has exalted him above all, so that every knee should bow before him, whether things in heaven or things in earth. What do we know about Jesus Christ? Little children, he says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What do we know? But thanks be to God which gives us victory through Jesus Christ. It's not our church. It's not a preacher. It's not your family. It's not your money. It's not our Americanism. It is Jesus Christ that gives us the victory. We need to be close to him and rely upon him to strengthen us, to help us through. What do we learn through this text? God is anxious and willing to give you the strength you need to overcome, to have victory, 
God is not sitting in heaven holding back. God wants to help you to overcome such things as addictions, to overcome such things as bad habits, the cussing, the cursing, the carrying on, whether it be drinking or gossiping, or even the bad attitudes, a critical spirit, an angry spirit, an unforgiving heart, a lack of love, a struggle with obeying. God says, I will help you in these battles. I can give you the victory to get over the idea of having a loose tongue. I can help you. I can help you to be able to have that right loving spirit towards members and of family that you struggle with. I can help you with purity in your life. I can help you with forgiveness in your life. I can help you with, with boldness to give out the gospel. I can help you with being a better example. I can help you with controlling your emotions to the point that they bring glory to God. I can help you. And so he's telling us in this text that he is more than willing. Go to chapter 3. Look at verse 20. Have you ever marked this verse before? Have you ever underlined it? You ought to. Look at what he promises. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. God will give you the power, give you the, the ability to overcome temptation greater than what you think he can. Beyond your expectations. You struggle with a besetting sin. Here's the course of victory. This is what he's giving us. He is saying, I have a promised resource for you, a provided one. I'll give you the armor. I'll give you the ability. I will strengthen you. He goes on. He says, the power is from God. Therefore, it's always available. God doesn't run low. God doesn't have a limit. God isn't saying, saying that, hey, listen, you know, I've run out of fuel today because we've, you know, I've given it cheaply and so obviously we're run on all of, the, all of the fuel, the strength, and therefore we're out. No. God never runs dry, never runs out of the power that you need. This power is not automatically in you. Yes, the Spirit of God resides in me. Yes, the Spirit of God is within you. That, that vehicle, that vessel, vessel by which he can strengthen you. But you must fulfill your responsibility of going to him and asking him to give you that power this day. To help you. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and upbraideth not. What is he telling us? You need to do your part to let him strengthen you you got to do your part. So we put it all together. We bring all these three emphatic thoughts together, and where does it lead us right now for this week? Let's gel it all together. You and I have the personal responsibility to spend time every day with the Lord so you can have the provided resources that you need to have the promised results of victory over temptations. Is that clear and simple enough? It starts with you taking time every day with the Lord. I didn't set a time. 
I didn't set a, 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 an idea here beyond you need to have time with the Lord every day. That's your responsibility so you can get the provided resources asking him to strengthen you so you can have the promised results of victory. It doesn't come because I'm a preacher, so it automatically is mine. No, I must have personal time with the Lord. It doesn't come automatically because you deke as a deacon or you teach or you give money or you dress nice or you're a great dad, which I'm sure you are. This requires you to spend time personally with the Lord. So how did it go this week? How was your, how was your time? Was life so busy that you just didn't have time for God? And then you wonder why the anger. Then you wonder why the shortness at work. Then you wonder why I can't witness like I ought to witness and be impacting. You got to have time with the Lord. This is where it needs to be fixed. This is what he's talking to the Ephesians. You need to begin certain things. And if there's a problem, fix the problem. I'll take you back into history for a moment. Pearl Harbor was attacked. We all know this story. How the, the Pacific fleet was destroyed, came under attack on that infamous day. The day of infamy, as the president called it then. But do you realize that they were already focusing on this attack for 10 years in the Japanese naval schools? For 10 years earlier, actually since 1931, the assignment to every graduate in the Naval Academy, Japanese Naval Academy, was you have to prepare a plan on how we could attack the United States Navy at Pearl Harbor in a successful fashion. Every student had to write an essay, present some type of a battle plan. And for all those 10 years, with all the different students, they never came up with a better one than the one that they first came across in 1931. The irony was, in 1931, the battle plan that was laid out was laid out by a Japanese. It was laid out by the commander of Pearl Harbor. Admiral Yarnell thought that, it was, that Pearl Harbor was not defended the way it should be. And in order to convince the brass that they need to make some changes, he put together a mock strategy, a battle plan of how somebody with just two carriers and 154 planes could come and successfully destroy the Pacific Fleet. He had it all laid out. He even played some naval battles to try to demonstrate to when some of the officials from Washington, D.C. came to visit Pearl Harbor. But it was going to be too expensive. It was going to be too much work to make the changes. So none of the changes were made over the next 10 years, and Yarnell's plan is the very plan they used in attacking and having victory at Pearl Harbor. We look and we say today, how dumb of our American officials not to listen to the warning. So I point out this morning that you've got a weakness that you need to address. How foolish of you not to make, make some changes. 
not to address your weakness. There is no reason you need to be defeated unless you choose to do nothing about it. You need to spend time every day with the Lord this week. We'll talk about the panoply, but right now, let's talk to the Lord about how faithful we've been in spending time with Him. Father,